we continue with the opinion of the court in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., v. President and Fellows of Harvard College. Beginning with Part 4 of the Opinion. Part 4. Twenty years later, no end is in sight. Harvard's view about when race-based admissions will end doesn't have a date on it. Neither does UNC's. Yet, both insist that the use of race in their admissions programs must continue. But we have permitted race-based admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. University programs must comply with strict scrutiny. They may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and at some point, they must end. Respondents' admission systems, however well-intentioned and implemented in good faith, fail each of these criteria. They must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Section A. Because racial discrimination is invidious in all contexts, we have required that universities operate their race-based admissions programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. Classifying and assigning students based on their race requires more than an amorphous end to justify it. Respondents have fallen short of satisfying that burden. First, the interests they view as compelling cannot be subjected to meaningful judicial review. Harvard identifies the following educational benefits that it is pursuing. One, training future leaders in the public and private sectors. Two, preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society. Three, better educating its students through diversity. And four, producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. UNC points to similar benefits, namely one, promoting the robust exchange of ideas, two, broadening and refining understanding, three, fostering innovation and problem-solving, four, preparing engaged and productive citizens and leaders, and five, enhancing appreciation, respect, and empathy, cross-racial understanding, and breaking down stereotypes. Although these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. At the outset, it is unclear how courts are supposed to measure any of these goals. How is a court to know whether leaders have been adequately trained, whether the exchange of ideas is robust, or whether new knowledge is being developed? Even if these goals could somehow be measured, moreover, how is a court to know when they have been reached, and when the perilous remedy of racial preferences may cease? There is no particular point at which there exists sufficient innovation and problem-solving, or students who are appropriately engaged and productive. Finally, the question in this context is not one of no diversity or of some. It is a question of degree. How many fewer leaders Harvard would create without racial preferences 
or how much poorer the education at Harvard would be, are inquiries no court could resolve. Comparing respondents' asserted goals to interests we have recognized as compelling further illustrates their elusive nature. In the context of racial violence in a prison, for example, courts can ask whether temporary racial segregation of inmates will prevent harm to those in the prison. When it comes to workplace discrimination, courts can ask whether a race-based benefit makes members of the discriminated class whole for the injuries they suffered. And in school segregation cases, courts can determine whether any race-based remedial action produces a distribution of students comparable to what it would have been in the absence of such constitutional violations. Nothing like that is possible when it comes to evaluating the interests respondents assert here. Unlike discerning whether a prisoner will be injured or whether an employee should receive back pay, the question whether a particular mix of minority students produces engaged and productive citizens sufficiently enhances appreciation, respect, and empathy or effectively trains future leaders is standardless. The interests that respondents seek, though plainly worthy, are inescapably imponderable. Second, respondents' admissions programs fail to articulate a meaningful connection between the means they employ and the goals they pursue. To achieve the educational benefits of diversity, UNC works to avoid the underrepresentation of minority groups. While Harvard likewise guards against inadvertent drop-offs in representation of certain minority groups from year to year. To accomplish both of these goals in turn, the universities measure the racial composition of their classes using the following categories: 1. Asian, 2. Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, 3. Hispanic, 4. White, 5. African American, and six, Native American. It is far from evident, though, how assigning students to these racial categories and making admissions decisions based on them furthers the educational benefits that the universities claim to pursue. For starters, the categories are themselves imprecise in many ways. Some of them are plainly overbroad, by grouping together all Asian students, for instance, respondents are apparently uninterested in whether South Asian or East Asian students are adequately represented, so long as there is enough of one to compensate for a lack of the other. Meanwhile, other racial categories, such as Hispanic, are arbitrary or undefined. And still other categories are under-inclusive. When asked at oral argument how are applicants from Middle Eastern countries classified, such as Jordan, Iraq, Iran, and Egypt, UNC's counsel responded, I do not know the answer to that question. Indeed, the use of these opaque racial categories undermines, instead of promotes, respondents' goals. By focusing on underrepresentation, Respondents would apparently prefer a class with 15% of students from Mexico over a class with 10% of students from several Latin American countries, 
simply because the former contains more Hispanic students than the latter. Yet it is hard to understand how a plan that could allow these results can be viewed as being concerned with achieving enrollment that is broadly diverse. And given the mismatch between the means respondents employ and the goals they seek, it is especially hard to understand how courts are supposed to scrutinize the admissions programs that respondents use. The university's main response to these criticisms is, essentially, trust us. None of the questions recited above need answering, they say, because universities are owed deference when using race to benefit some applicants but not others. It is true that our cases have recognized a tradition of giving a degree of deference to a university's academic decisions, but we have been unmistakably clear that any deference must exist within constitutionally prescribed limits and that deference does not imply abandonment or abdication of judicial review. Universities may define their missions as they see fit. The Constitution defines ours. Courts may not license separating students on the basis of race without an exceedingly persuasive justification that is measurable and concrete enough to permit judicial review. As this court has repeatedly reaffirmed, racial classifications are simply too pernicious to permit any but the most exact connection between justification and classification. The programs at issue here do not satisfy that standard. Section B. The race-based admission systems that respondents employ also fail to comply with the twin commands of the Equal Protection Clause that race may never be used as a negative and that it may not operate as a stereotype. First, our cases have stressed that an individual's race may never be used against him in the admissions process. Here, however, the First Circuit found that Harvard's consideration of race has led to an 11.1% decrease in the number of Asian Americans admitted to Harvard. And the District Court observed that Harvard's policy of considering applicants' race overall results in fewer Asian American and white students being admitted. Respondents nonetheless contend that an individual's race is never a negative factor in their admissions programs, but that assertion cannot withstand scrutiny. Harvard, for example, draws an analogy between race and other factors it considers in admission. While admissions officers may give a preference to applicants likely to excel in the Harvard-Radcliffe Orchestra, Harvard explains, that does not mean it is a negative not to excel at a musical instrument. But on Harvard's logic, while it gives preferences to applicants with high grades and test scores, that does not mean it is a negative to be a student with lower grades and lower test scores. This understanding of the admissions process is hard to take seriously. College admissions are zero-sum, a benefit provided to some applicants but not to others necessarily advantages the former group at the expense of the latter. 
Respondents also suggest that race is not a negative factor because it does not impact many admissions decisions. Yet at the same time, respondents also maintain that the demographics of their admitted classes would meaningfully change if race-based admissions were abandoned. And they acknowledge that race is determinative for at least some, if not many, of the students they admit. How else but negative can race be described if, in its absence, members of some racial groups would be admitted in greater numbers than they otherwise would have been? The equal protection of the laws is not achieved through indiscriminate imposition of inequalities. Respondents' admissions programs are infirm for a second reason as well. We have long held that universities may not operate their admissions programs on the belief that minority students always, or even consistently, express some characteristic minority viewpoint on any issue. That requirement is found throughout our Equal Protection Clause jurisprudence more generally. Yet by accepting race-based admissions programs in which some students may obtain preferences on the basis of race alone, Respondents' programs tolerate the very thing that Gruder forswore, stereotyping. The point of respondents' admissions programs is that there is an inherent benefit in race qua race, in race for race's sake. Respondents admit as much. Harvard's admissions process rests on the pernicious stereotype that a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. UNC is much the same. It argues that race in itself says something about who you are. We have time and again forcefully rejected the notion that government actors may intentionally allocate preference to those who may have little in common with one another but the color of their skin. The entire point of the Equal Protection Clause is that treating someone differently because of their skin color is not like treating them differently because they are from a city or from a suburb or because they play the violin poorly or well. One of the principal reasons race is treated as a forbidden classification is that it demeans the dignity and worth of a person to be judged by ancestry instead of by his or her own merit and essential qualities. But when a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. At the very least, alike in the sense of being different from non-minority students. In doing so, the university furthers stereotypes that treat individuals as the product of their race, evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution. Such stereotyping can only cause continued hurt and injury, contrary as it is to the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause. Section C. If all this were not enough, respondents' admissions programs also lack a logical endpoint. 
Respondents and the government first suggest that respondents' race-based admissions programs will end when, in their absence, there is meaningful representation and meaningful diversity on college campuses. The metric of meaningful representation, respondents assert, does not involve any strict numerical benchmark or precise number or percentage, or specified percentage. So what does it involve? Numbers all the same. At Harvard, each full committee meeting begins with a discussion of how the breakdown of the class compares to the prior year in terms of racial identities. And if at some point in the admissions process it appears that a group is notably underrepresented or has suffered a dramatic drop-off relative to the prior year, the admissions committee may decide to give additional attention to applications from students within that group. The results of the Harvard admissions process reflect this numerical commitment. For the admitted classes of 2009 to 2018, black students represented a tight band of 10% to 11.7% of the admitted pool. The same theme held true for other minority groups. Harvard's focus on numbers is obvious. UNC's admissions program operates similarly. The university frames the challenge it faces as the admission and enrollment of underrepresented minorities, a metric that turns solely on whether a group's percentage enrollment within the undergraduate student body is lower than their percentage within the general population in North Carolina. The university has not yet fully achieved its diversity-related educational goals, it explains, in part due to its failure to obtain closer to proportional representation. The problem with these approaches is well established. Outright racial balancing is patently unconstitutional. That is so, we have repeatedly explained, because at the heart of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection lies the simple command that the government must treat citizens as individuals, not as simply components of racial, religious, sexual, or national class. By promising to terminate their use of race only when some rough percentage of various racial groups is admitted, respondents turn that principle on its head. Their admissions programs effectively assure that race will always be relevant and that the ultimate goal of eliminating race as a criterion will never be achieved. Respondent's second proffered endpoint fares no better. Respondents assert that universities will no longer need to engage in race-based admissions when, in their absence, students nevertheless receive the educational benefits of diversity. But, as we have already explained, it is not clear how a court is supposed to determine when stereotypes have broken down or productive citizens and leaders have been created. Nor is there any way to know whether those goals would adequately be met in the absence of a race-based admissions program. As UNC itself acknowledges, these qualitative standards are difficult to measure. 
Third, respondents suggest that race-based preferences must be allowed to continue for at least five more years, based on the court's statement in Grutter that it expected that 25 years from now the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. The 25-year mark articulated in Grutter, however, reflected only that court's view that race-based preferences would, by 2028, be unnecessary to ensure a requisite level of racial diversity on college campuses. That expectation was oversold. Neither Harvard nor UNC believes that race-based admissions will in fact be unnecessary in five years, and both universities thus expect to continue using race as a criterion well beyond the time limit that Grutter suggested. Indeed, the high school applicants that Harvard and UNC will evaluate this fall using their race-based admission systems are expected to graduate in 2028, 25 years after Grutter was decided. Finally, respondents argue that their programs need not have an endpoint at all because they frequently review them to determine whether they remain necessary. Respondents point to language in Grutter that, they contend, permits the durational requirement to be met with periodic reviews to determine whether racial preferences are still necessary to achieve student body diversity. But Grutter never suggested that periodic review could make unconstitutional conduct constitutional. To the contrary, the court made clear that race-based admissions programs eventually had to end, despite whatever periodic review universities conducted. Here, however, Harvard concedes that its race-based admissions program has no end point, and it acknowledges that the way it thinks about the use of race in its admissions process is the same now as it was nearly 50 years ago. UNC's race-based admissions program is likewise not set to expire anytime soon, nor, indeed, any time at all. The university admits that it has not set forth a proposed time period in which it believes it can end all race-conscious admissions practices, and UNC suggests that it might soon use race to a greater extent than it currently does. In short, there is no reason to believe that respondents will, even acting in good faith, comply with the Equal Protection Clause anytime soon. This opinion has been divided into four episodes, and we've just come to the end of the third. Next episode, we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.